Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Two American hostages released from Gaza. Find out what lies ahead for them and in the war between Israel and terrorist group Hamas. And President Biden reacting to the hostage release and asking Congress for a $100 billion aid package for Israel and Ukraine. In the Georgia elections case, prosecutors have secured another plea deal. This time, it's one of the attorneys directly involved in the alleged fake elector scheme. House Republicans tossed Jim Jordan out of the speaker race after a third failed ballot, leaving Democrats to forge ahead with a solution of their own. And a $200,000 payment directly to Joe Biden. Is this the smoking gun House Republicans happen after? We'll look into it. A breakthrough has occurred in the middle of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Two American hostages have been released. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. As blood, death and destruction surround the war between Israel and Hamas terrorists, there is a flicker of hope. Uh, about an hour ago, uh, two American citizens held by Hamas since October 7th uh, were released. Uh, these two Americans are now safely in the hands of Israeli authorities in Israel. We expect a team from the U.S. Embassy to uh, see them very shortly. Uh, over the coming hours, they'll receive any uh, support and assistance that they need. And of course, we're very anxious to be able to reunite them with their loved ones. The two hostages are American, Judith Ra'anan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie. Their release has given some hope to family members of the approximately 200 hostages who remain in captivity. Those hostages were taken by Hamas terrorists during a surprise attack about two weeks ago on civilians attending a music festival near the Gaza border. The terrorists also killed over 1,400 civilians in the attack, sparking the war between Israel and Hamas. Hey, we are not sleeping. We can't eat. We can't dream. On Friday, family members of the other Israeli hostages set up an extended dinner table with empty seats representing those hostages. We're trying to send them all the blessing and the strength that they need. I hope they will hear us and feel us as we feel them every day. Meanwhile, Israel and Hezbollah terrorists are in constant clashes along Israel's northern border with Lebanon. On Thursday, Hezbollah released a video which shows them purportedly firing a missile at an Israeli military communications tower. Although the clashes in Israel's north are not full scale, Israel is taking precautions after heavy cross-border exchanges of fire in the area the day before. Actually, the situation in Israel right now it's very difficult, like my brother say, but you know what? We're going to win. On Friday, Israel ordered the evacuation of more than 20,000 residents from Kiryat Shmona, one of the biggest towns on its northern border. Meanwhile, on Israel's other border with Gaza, Israeli tanks remain staged along the Gaza Strip, waiting for the order to go ahead with the ground offensive. Military analysts have said it will be a bloody and dangerous battle. But Israel's defense minister appears resolute in the mission. He explained what to expect after they defeat Hamas. 
The next phase will be more drawn out. It will be the phase of stabilizing the situation, and in the end, at some stage, we will reach a situation where there is a completely different security situation. He went on to say that the Israeli Defense Forces will have complete freedom to operate and that there will be no threat from within the Gaza Strip. He said the operation won't take a day or a week, and unfortunately, not a month. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden reacting to the hostage release and asking Congress for a massive aid package for Ukraine and Israel. Joining us now live is NDD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. First, what are we hearing from the president about the hostage situation? Good evening to you as well, Tiff. President Biden this afternoon issued a statement in which he said he was, quote, overjoyed that these two hostages will soon be reunited with their family, which has been racked with fear. Biden also thanked the governments of Israel and Qatar for helping to secure the release of these two hostages. Meanwhile, this new development comes as the Biden administration today formally sent a request to Congress asking for some $105 billion in funding. And among a variety of things, they ask for $60 billion for Ukraine and some $14 billion for Israel. Here's Biden making a direct appeal to the American public during a primetime speech last night. Watch. I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine, is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Democratic lawmaker says that Biden's funding request shows that America is standing with democracies and showing its commitment to them. However, this funding request will get pushed back, especially as support for more funding for Ukraine has been waning, especially among Republicans. Here's what some Republican presidential candidates have said about it. Watch. And the package itself has more money for Ukraine than it does for Israel. Israel is in the beginning of a war. I think it is wrong to commingle the package of aid to Ukraine and Israel in the same discussion. That's designed to sidestep debate, particularly around the Ukraine aid. The funding request also includes money for humanitarian aid, defense funding for the Indo-Pacific region, and some funding for the U.S. southern border. However, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican senator today, said that due to Republican opposition to some major elements in that request, the White House proposal will be, quote, dead on arrival. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. A Northern Georgia defendant cuts a deal. Attorney Ken Chesbro gets five years probation in exchange for cooperating with prosecutors. That leaves 16 defendants, including former President Trump, in the Fulton County RICO case. Here's more from legal correspondent Arlene Richards. Another day, another plea deal. A third defendant in the sprawling Georgia election racketeering case pleads guilty. He's the second attorney to do so, but the only one to accept a felony charge. How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. Attorney Ken Chesbro was facing six felony charges in the election fraud case brought by prosecutor Fonnie Willis against 19 defendants. The prosecutor said she would have shown at trial that Chesbro and several other defendants 
entered into a criminal conspiracy to cause certain other co-conspirators, including David James Schaefer, Sean Micah Thrasher Steele, and Kathleen Austin Latham to falsely hold themselves out as the duly elected and qualified electors for the president and vice president from Georgia following the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election. Chesbro had been accused of writing a memo to get so-called fake electors to switch votes from Joe Biden to former President Trump. Chesbro was expected to be tried alongside attorney Sidney Powell, but her felony charges were dismissed Thursday in a separate deal. The new plea came shortly after jury selection began Friday for his trial. His deal includes five years probation and paying $5,000 in restitution. He also agreed to testify against the other defendants. Over in Michigan, a defendant in a related case made a deal on Thursday. Based on an agreement between the parties, the people are actually moving to dismiss the case against Mr. Renner. Michigan Republican James Renner had been charged with participating in a fake elector plot and faced eight felony charges, including election law forgery and conspiracy. The state of Michigan is one of several states mentioned in the Georgia case as involving fake electors who were part of the larger scheme to overturn the 2020 election. Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel, a Democrat, charged 16 defendants in July. She was the first prosecutor to file such fake elector charges. Under the deal, Renner will testify against the other defendants. It's unclear whether or not Renner's testimony could be used by Georgia prosecutors against former President Trump. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Over in New York, Trump has to pay a fine for violating a gag order. A federal judge used his direct authority to sanction the former president. The fine is $5,000. The judge called one of Trump's posts a blatant violation of the gag order. Trump had posted a picture of the judge's law clerk with Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer and called her Schumer's girlfriend. Trump removed the post from Truth Social when the judge ordered him to in the early days of the trial, but a copy of it remained on Trump's campaign website until last night. The former president's attorney said this was not intentional. On Capitol Hill, Congressman Jim Jordan is out of the speaker's race. Enough Republicans against him as the nominee by a secret vote following the third failed ballot on the House floor. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us with some updates. Here we are back in the same position that we were at two weeks ago with Republicans having to now go back to the drawing board and choose another nominee after their second nominee, Jim Jordan, failed yet again to secure enough votes on the third ballot today. He actually lost even more votes than he had in previous days. Around 25 members on the floor opposed his speakership, and that number went up even more when Republicans went behind closed doors and took a secret vote on whether or not Jim Jordan should step out of the race. 112 members said that he should, which led to a Jim Jordan stepping down. Here's how Jordan responded shortly after today's internal vote, along with how other Republican members are feeling about being back at square one. And so we put the question to them. They made a different decision. We are in a very bad position as a party, one that has won the majority, one that America has entrusted us with, that a simple eight people have put us in this place. If I put out a name, I'd probably poison the individual. I don't want to do that. Steve Scalise should be the Speaker of the House today because he was the first one that won the conference. This is why when you, when you lack party discipline, this is what happens. This 
And I'm afraid nobody has the gravitas that Jordan had with conservatives to say, you're going to do a CR and you're going to like it. Mm. <laughs> you know, the very thing that got McCarthy ousted, people were ready to accept under Jim Jordan. And there are already a long list of Republicans jumping into the race. For example, Tom Emmer, who's currently the Republican whip, he's jumping in, as well as Kevin Hearn, who said he would previously be the majority leader if Steve Scalise had taken that position, along with other members like Mike Johnson, who's the vice chair of the Republican conference, saying he's considering it. And in addition to this, there's also pressure mounting for the House to take action on a temporary resolution that would expand the powers of the temporary speaker. That way they can get some legislative action going while Republicans are hashing this out, the Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries today said that he is aware of conversations between Democrat members in his party and Republican members to try to find an immediate solution as early as next week. Here's the Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries explaining this as well as how Republicans are responding. Conversations hopefully will intensify today, perhaps continue throughout the weekend, and get us to a place where we can reopen the House no later than Monday of next week. Um, why would he, if, if he had that working in secret, why would he disclose that to the public? I just, that's just to cast doubt. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm all in for Patrick McHenry's expanded authority um, so we can op turn the lights back on. I hope that doesn't happen. If they do, they probably ought to switch to the Democratic Party. So we're keeping an eye on this to see how this resolution develops, as well as if Republicans are able to, on this third try, choose a nominee that sticks. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskop, NTD News. Republican lawmakers say they found a smoking gun against President Biden in the investigation into his family's business dealings. What's the evidence and how strong is it? To discuss, we spoke with a retired FBI agent and former assistant district attorney for Brooklyn. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me back. To begin, according to bank records obtained by the House Oversight Committee in 2018, President Biden received a $200,000 check from his brother James, who is a business partner of Hunter Biden. Now, on the same day that James's struggling healthcare company, AmeriCorps, wired a loan of the same amount into his personal bank account. Tell us about the significance of this and what it could mean. Well, from a legal perspective, the significance is really very, very high because it's the first inkling we've seen of a direct payment coming from uh, James Biden to his brother, Joe Biden. So uh, we have a personal check now of a huge amount of $200,000 going directly to, uh, to, to Joe Biden. So it... You know, it may not seem significant to the general public, but from a legal uh, and a prosecutorial point of view, it really now sets the stage and is the first in what may be a domino effect of evidence coming directly and not by implication, uh, implicating the, the current president of the United States. So it's really a, a very high, high importance, I would say. And Mark, you mentioned the legal aspect of this. Is this a smoking gun or could there be a reasonable above board explanation for this? Well, I think that 
to come up with a reasonable uh, explanation that's going to be believed by any significant number of people, that's going to be acceptable to the public and to uh, the uh, prosecutors who ultimately handle this case, uh, would be uh, uh, hard to come by. And I suggest it would be a pretty far-fetched explanation, because you have James uh, receiving uh, $200,000 plus, and then the same day, turning around and writing a check to his brother Joe, and then the check is marked as repayment of a loan. So what loan is being repaid? And, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions asked uh, and answers which are going to have to be provided before uh, we're satisfied with the uh, with a, a legitimate purpose for this transfer of a significant amount of money. And on that note, what does this mean for the overall House investigation into President Joe Biden and his family's foreign business dealings? Well, for one thing, it certainly adds to the credibility of the investigation. You know, prior to this, we've had a lot of uh, evidence surfacing involving Hunter Biden and other members of the Biden clan. But now we have uh, Joe Biden being directly tied into the uh, exchange of funds. So uh, so it has a high significance and uh, and gives the congressional inquiry in its entirety a lot of credibility, more credibility, I would suggest, than it had uh, up to date. Quite serious indeed. Well, Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Coming up, President Biden might have more competition. Another Democrat is reportedly planning to enter the 2024 elections. Find out who it is and what the polls say about a potential Biden-Trump matchup. Senator LaFonza Butler says she's not seeking a full term in 2024. She's currently serving the remainder of the term left by the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. Did China escalate the global tech fight? The country announced today that it will restrict exports of a key EV battery mineral. And an arrest made over the illegal Chinese biolab that operated in California. More details about the operation and the bust coming up here on NTV News. Welcome back. Another Democrat may soon enter the 2024 presidential race, challenging President Biden for the nomination. This comes as a new poll today shows former President Trump is leading over Biden in a potential 2024 matchup. Entities Arian Pazdar has an election update. In fact, my bipartisan pathways to Congressman Dean Phillips is reportedly planning to enter the 2024 presidential race. Politico reports the Minnesota Democrat could challenge President Biden for the Democratic nomination. Phillips is reportedly laying the groundwork in key early states, paving the way for the announcement of his presidential run. This comes as a new poll on Friday shows former President Trump is leading over Biden in a potential 2024 matchup. The new Emerson College poll shows that 47% of voters say they'd vote for Trump. 45% say they're supporting Biden. Less than 10% are undecided. 
The same poll gives Trump an even stronger lead when it comes to young voters. Emerson found that Trump leads Biden by 11 points in voters in their 30s. Just on Friday, Trump attacked Biden on Truth Social for the president's handling of international affairs. Trump says the Israel war started because of the Biden administration and their policies of weakness and appeasement. He added, this is true also with Ukraine-Russia, which would never have started under the Trump administration and many other hotspots around the globe that could easily lead to big problems and death. Meanwhile, Republicans with less approval in the polls are fighting each other, especially Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. The two went back and forth all week long on the issue of taking in refugees from Gaza. Now, just on Friday, Haley released a new campaign ad directly targeting DeSantis. Take a look. You banned fracking, you banned offshore drilling, and you took green subsidies that you didn't have to take. Meanwhile, DeSantis accuses Haley of flipping her stance on refugees from Gaza. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Newly appointed California Democratic Senator LaFonza Butler will not seek election to a full term in 2024. She avoids a costly and competitive race for the seat held for three decades by the late Dianne Feinstein. Senator LaFonza Butler, who Governor Gavin Newsom named earlier this month to complete Feinstein's remaining term, said in a statement she decided not to seek a full term after considering, quote, what kind of life I want to have. She says, knowing you can win a campaign doesn't always mean you should run a campaign. I know this will be a surprise to many because traditionally, we don't see those who have power let it go. It may not be the decision people expected, but it's the right one for me. Her candidacy would have complicated an already crowded race that includes several other prominent Democrats, U.S. Representatives Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee. On the Republican side, there's Steve Garvey, a former baseball MVP, Denise Gary Pandel, and Eric Early. We have to deregulate the economy. And one of the best ways that we can deregulate the economy is beginning to get rid of the bureaucracies that are controlling our lives in California. They have an Antifa ideology, uh, can't stand our Constitution, don't care about law and order. And at the end of the day, as U.S. Senator, I will do everything I can to fight against that, to fight for all the people, we the people in this country. Butler, a Democratic insider and former labor leader, had never held public office before joining the Senate. China is planning to restrict exports of a crucial mineral used to make EV batteries. Officials announced today that permits will be required for certain graphite products. We spoke to NTD Business host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Before we get to the China part, give us a little bit of the background here. Sure. First of all, China is the world's top producer of graphite. And according to the U.S. Geological Survey, China accounts for two-thirds of the global supply. Uh, China also refines more than 90% of the world's graphite into material used virtually in all EV batteries. So, you know, China is an important player here in this front. And the reason why graphite is important is because graphite is the largest EV battery component by weight uh, and almost double the amount of lithium in an EV battery. Uh, but besides EVs, graphite is also commonly used 
interest in the semiconductor, aerospace, chemical, and steel industries. And top buyers of graphite uh, are Japan, the U.S., and a couple of other countries. And now, why is China limiting exports of this crucial mineral? So according to the official statement, uh, it's for national security reasons. China's Commerce Ministry said the move was to ensure stability of the global supply chain and industrial chain and to better safeguard national security and interests. Um, it added that it was not targeting any specific country, uh, but that's the official reason. But some analysts are questioning whether, you know, this is a tit-for-tat measure against the U.S. because Washington on Tuesday said it plans to halt shipments of more advanced artificial intelligence chips to China. And three days later, here we are, Beijing officials announcing these graphite curbs. So the timing may be curious to some. And on that last part, what will be the impact of these curbs? Right. So under these uh, new restrictions, which will take effect in December, China is going to require exporters to apply for permits to ship certain types of graphite. And the curbs are actually similar to those placed on chip-making metals gallium and germanium from a few months ago. And from what we've seen with that, uh, those restrictions they have effectively choked off exports of those metals and pushed up prices outside of the country. So that's a reference. But what analysts are also saying is that the impact uh, could be that the average price of graphite will continue to rise in the future. But this control is not a complete ban. And there has been no significant impact on any industry during the previous temporary controls. And this also raises the question, though, of how dependent on China does the U.S. want to be uh, in the context of the electrification of vehicles? Um, it potentially highlights the need for the West to perhaps have independent supply chains and self-sufficiency in both raw materials and downstream components. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, as always. Next, an arrest over the illegal Chinese biolab in California. It contained bacterial viruses such as SARS, COVID, and HIV. Now, authorities say they've arrested a man. NTD's David Lamb speaks with an Epic Times reporter who spent several weeks uncovering the web of connections tied to the Reedley California lab. Steve Espes with the Epic Times. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, what's the significance of this arrest? We realized that the, the people uh, behind this company. They have a very complicated and complex background and very troubling background. They have been involved with several companies uh, in at least 10 countries that we have looked at and they've all been in trouble with the law. The mastermind of this operation is someone by the name of Jesse Jew. He's the one who controls all of these companies. So Jesse Jew, this is a 62-year-old man that is a Chinese citizen um, and formerly lived in Clovis. So what are some of the charges that he's facing? He's actually a Canadian citizen as well. So the charges for which, which he was arrested yesterday are manufacturing and distributing unbranded medical devices that are not registered with the FDA, and also for making false statements to the FDA, including his name. He, cha he uses a fake identity. These are just still charges. If convicted, he could be in jail for acts up to eight years. How did this illegal operation was running for so long before it came into the public's eye or the code enforcement officer? Well, see what they do is they, they move from city to city. 
they changed company names, and as we realized yesterday, they even changed identity names of the people. So Universal Meditech, which was the main company that was involved with the Biolab, has been going through Fresno, uh, Tulare, Reedley, back to Fresno, back to Tulare, back to Reedley. All of these people controlling these companies are also very close related to companies in China that uh, are related also to this Jesse Jew person. But all of this was not regulated, was not approved by the FDA. Going back to the background of the Canadian companies, uh, Jesse Jew and his companies have been sued by, by the Canadian entities. They've been sued several times, up to $330 million for damages done to those companies. Now, he didn't pay a penny of that. He found ways around it and legal loopholes. Steve Espers with the Epic Times, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Coming up, what to make of the major media flip-flop in reporting on the Gaza hospital blast. The director of a series on Epic TV discusses journalistic bias and the importance of being a smart consumer of news. And terrorist group Hamas has a history of stealing humanitarian aid. Will it get its hands on any of the $100 million worth that President Biden is sending to Gaza? We'll look at that possibility when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Two American hostages, mother and daughter, released by Hamas terrorists. This comes as President Biden is working to secure a $100 billion aid package for Israel and Ukraine. A third defendant in Georgia's election interference RICO case takes a plea deal, attorney Ken Chesbro. His plea deal involves testifying against the other defendants. He's the only one to accept a felony charge. On the House floor today, GOP hopeful Jim Jordan is out of the speakership race after a third failed ballot. And the Democrat leader hints at a possible bipartisan solution coming on Monday. Are media outlets admitting their mistakes when heavy reliance on one source results in false reporting, as we saw in the coverage of the Gaza hospital blast? Joining us to discuss the challenges of responsible journalism is the director of the Epic TV series, The Presidential Roller Coaster. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, glad to be back. We saw a flip-flop, if you will, on the coverage of the Gaza hospital blast. In the beginning, several major media outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal covered full-page spreads on Israeli strike kills 500 in hospital blast. And then as more information came out, there were different headlines saying, oh, the U.S. says Israel is not behind this. But as far as we know, no outlet has come out with a major correction as new evidence comes out. What do you make of coverage of this by these major media outlets? Uh, it's despicable and corrupt. <laughs> and also, 
it's an indication that maybe the people doing these things late at night, which is when this news came in, are very junior players who just got out of Columbia Journalism School and know nothing of history. Because one of the very obvious things about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in its many years is that the Palestinians, not just Hamas, but many others, hide their weapons inside hospitals and and schools and this has been well known so the first, actually when i heard when the news broke my first assumption was not what apparently is true which is that it was an islamic jihad rocket gone astray which often happens i thought it was just weapons blowing up inside the school that were, were hidden there because that has also happened but historically like these people didn't know anything about any of that I mean because if you had you would go well wait a minute here let's just report this in a neutral manner uh, that's one aspect the other aspect is particularly the New York Times has a very bad history regarding Israel which is particularly strange since its founders were Jewish and one argument is that in breaking news situations, media have to just update things as information comes in. But critics are saying that the damage has already been done. We're seeing large protests erupt after these headlines. What's your take on the media's role in covering events like this? Terrible. <laughs> in a word. And it all, I think it goes back to that famous quotation from Churchill about, I won't get it right, but basically it was the, a lie goes around the world before the truth can get his pants on or something like that. But in reality, in Churchill's day, it was a lot slower than it, and now it goes around the world in digital time. So that news that was misreported by the New York Times was around the world practically instantly. And, of course, picked up by all the uh, papers in the Arab world that despise Israel and always have. So they went, oh, <laughs> it was a fiesta. And this this goes on and on. And it's, it's um, how we stop it, other than reforming our own mainstream media, I don't know. The role of the New York Times is particularly nefarious because historically and still to this day it has been regarded as the newspaper of record which has been entirely fallacious because if you go back uh, as early as the 19 late 20s and 30s when its Moscow correspondent Walter Durante deliberately misreported Stalin's activities in Ukraine uh, the famous Holodomor uh, was augmented with a millions of people died so the New York Times does not have the clean hands that people think it does and on that note, the New York Times gold badge or media badge on X or formerly Twitter was removed. It's now the blue badge. What's your understanding of why that was done? Well, I think what we've just been talking about is why I think Elon Musk recognized what, you know, many of us have recognized is that this is a very malign influence and that you cannot do things like that. And they should have better editorial checks. Why for many years ran... PJ Media, and <laughs> I once made a big boo-boo at midnight that went around the world. Uh, I can see, but I only did it once. They do it a lot, and that's not good, and they should have checks and balances. We had a very small staff. They should have checks and balances on this.
And it's not just the New York Times in the spotlight. Israel is actually moving to shut down the Al Jazeera channel that's citing concerns that the network is spreading propaganda from Hamas. What's your understanding of that move? Well, that's a complicated situation because Al Jazeera uh, is a um, what we might call a cat's paw of, of the nation of Gutter. And Gutter plays not just double roles, but triple and quadruple roles. And it's, and it's the main funnel of U.S. dollars into Iran. And it's the main funnel of Iranian dollars into Hamas. Then, of course, Al Jazeera has been their spokesperson. So I think Israel at war is very concerned about this. Do I approve of... They're doing what they did. The Israelis blackballing, or possibly blackballing Al Jazeera. Not really, I don't, because I'm a First Amendment um, believer. But uh, as we've seen in Ukraine, Ukraine, Zelensky has blackballed many publications uh, that uh, seems to get ignored in our country. And in times of war like this, where there's a lot of confusion, how can journalists get the accurate info and the public to trust them? I don't think it's very easy. NTD is a good place because you guys are cautious. And sometimes I get frustrated. Why are they being so cautious? But that's right. Epoch Times is also. But the, and there are, there are some other places that are. But it's really not easy. I mean, it really comes down to be, being a smart reader and observer more because the media, everyone's biased on some level, even if they deny their bias, especially when they deny their bias. I, I never deny my bias. I think that's a very important thing not to do. But but I, I think it has to, it comes down to being a smart consumer of the news. And it's very difficult, especially, especially during the fog of war. As you mentioned, critical thinking there. Well, Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. The terrorist group Hamas has been known to steal humanitarian aid originally meant for the poor citizens of Gaza. With President Biden announcing $100 million in aid for Palestinians, could any of it go straight to the terrorists? NTD's Jack Bradley investigates. If Hamas diverts or steals the assistance, they will have demonstrated once again that they have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people. Hamas has a history of stealing humanitarian aid. And as Israel continues fighting the terrorist group, many believe President Biden's $100 million aid package would go straight to Hamas. Back in 2009, Hamas seized hundreds of tons of food and other aid from the U.N. agency for Palestinian refugees. In one incident, the U.N. said Hamas stole 10 truckloads of flour and rice. In another, Hamas stole thousands of blanket and food parcels. The U.N. eventually suspended all aid. In 2012, Hamas blocked fruit imports from Israel. In 2015, Hamas created a so-called solidarity tax on essential imported goods. The revenue helped pay the salaries of Hamas members. According to the IDF, these taxes totaled $27 million a month in 2017. The IDF also says that in 2016, Hamas implemented a 20% tariff on hundreds of imported goods, forcing merchants to raise prices on everything, including basic necessities. 
the only way that aid can get to the people without take, uh, Hamas taking advantage is to take Hamas out of the equation. They are so thoroughly infiltrated in, in Gaza. They control the people. Middle East expert Gerard Falitti believes the money may just go straight to Hamas, though ultimately we don't know exactly how the U.S. plans to distribute the aid. If you have Israeli troops on the ground, there is more of an assurance that that money and that aid will actually reach the people who need it. But that requires a ground invasion, essentially, that very few people want to see happen. Falitti says the ground invasion isn't inevitable. It might even be avoided completely if the hostages are released. Jack Bradley, NTD News. A tragic story coming out of Israel. The bodies of a 12-year-old girl with autism and her 80-year-old grandmother were discovered near the border fence with Gaza. They were residents of a kibbutz near the border with Gaza. They went missing following the October 7th attacks by Hamas and were initially believed to have been taken hostage into Gaza. And there's still no word on the three other family members still missing. A father and two kids, 12 and 16 years old. Following a family gathering on the night of October 6th, 12-year-old Noya Dan slept over at her grandmother's place in a nearby kibbutz. But nobody thought this was the last time they would ever see them. On October 7th, the Hamas terrorist group stormed into nearby Israeli towns, brutally slaughtered families and abducted hundreds in an unprecedented surprise attack during a major Jewish holiday. Noya and Carmela Dan were two of the hostages taken. Abby Own is a relative of Noya and Carmela. She said her family got together for Carmela's 80th birthday on Tuesday to give each other strength. At the time, they thought Carmela was still alive. I can't imagine that the, the nightmare got worse, but it did. We not only now have two of them that have been murdered by Hamas, but we are still fighting for three of them. Noya's mother shared with Israel's Cannes public broadcaster Noya's final voice memos as they exchanged messages on the morning of October 7th in the midst of Hamas attacks. Noya was a Harry Potter fan. The author of the series, J.K. Rowling, reposted a photo of the girl on Monday when her whereabouts were still unknown. Rowling wrote, Kidnapping children is despicable and wholly unjustifiable. For obvious reasons, this picture has hit home with me. The, um, the estimation is that they were uh, got murdered after they got abducted when they crossed the border to Gaza, maybe because they were too slow. Maybe, you know, because Carmela is 80 and she has heart problem, so she's walking pretty, you know, she walks pretty slow. And uh, Noya, when she gets stressed out because she's in the autistic spectrum, uh, she starts yelling and she usually uh, stays in the same place. And we're afraid that this was the reason. The Israeli government now faces the challenge of identifying and cataloging the large number of victims. Many Israelis have suffered losses. We can't grieve in peace because we have to continue to fight. The family had to explain to their children that they were at war and that their loved ones were brutally killed. At the end of the conversation, we said to them, we don't hate anyone. We are not dealing with rage right now. We are dealing with hope and we're fighting. And I believe that's the only choice right now and the only thing that we can tell our children. 
Around 1,300 people were killed in Hamas's initial attacks on Israel on October 7th. Coming up, millennials are leaving California, but which state is the top relocation choice? Find out in a moment. And a new speed record for climbing Yosemite National Park's iconic El Capitan. Just how impressive is the record? We'll find out from a professional climber after the break. Welcome back. California millennials are flocking to Nevada. A study reveals why this is a top relocation choice. Entity Stephanie Sakal has the story. A recent Storage Cafe study shows that many California millennials are moving to Nevada, making it the top choice for relocation among this demographic. The study combines data from the U.S. Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, highlighting Nevada's position as the sixth highest state of net migration. In 2021, 7.9 million Americans moved to different states, with 60,000 Californians opting for Nevada. Conversely, states like California, Alaska, New York and Illinois are witnessing significant negative net migration. The COVID-19 pandemic appears to be a driving factor in these migration trends, with people favoring less densely populated areas. Whether this is a short-term or long-term shift remains uncertain and requires more time for a conclusive answer. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, California. A new speed record was set by a climber at Yosemite National Park. El Capitan is one of the park's most recognizable landmarks and also a popular challenge for world-class climbers. NTD's Jason Blair spoke with a professional to get an idea just how impressive the new record is. By over an hour, a new solo record was set for climbing a route called the Nose of El Capitan, a well-known rock formation in California's Yosemite Park. The climber is Nick Amen, a search and rescue member of Yosemite Valley. Amen climbed the nose in 4 hours and 39 minutes, beating the previous record of 5 hours and 50 minutes. To understand the record's significance, Entity asked professional climber Mason Deschamps, who has experience with El Capitan, to get his take. He said that speed climbing is the most dangerous form of climbing and a lot can go wrong. To me, the fact that he was able to take the record from Alex Honnold, the most sponsored climber in the world, just shows you how good of a climber this guy is. The standard way of speed climbing the nose is with two people. Deschamps says when someone does it solo, it's not only more risky, but also twice the work. So you have to do every pitch of climbing, every rope length of climbing twice. It's double the work, and the fact that he got a four-hour, 39-minute time blows my mind. The nose of El Capitan was previously considered an impossible climb until the 1950s. The first one-day completion of the nose was in 1989 by Steve Schneider, who did it in 21 hours and 22 minutes. Reporting in California, Jason Blair, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.